Hey everyone, it's Sid. Welcome to the fourth episode of the interview by the Nordic Model, the podcast where we talk about social democratic policy positions, theory, and events of interest. This week, I'm going to be interviewing Leo Samalati. Uh, Leo is a huge proponent of co-ops and works at the Co-op Exchange, a cooperative that aims to help launch co-ops and help investors invest in co-ops. Um, so the opportunities uh, for co-op firms today, as always, remain extremely intriguing. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Um, Leo is a platform cooperative enthusiast uh, and was a participant in the world's first platform cooperative accelerator program. And he's a member of the Finnish Social Democratic Party. So I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to this discussion. Uh, we hope you enjoy. Hi, Leo. Welcome to the interview. We're really happy to have you. Do you want to give us a quick introduction about yourself and plug in your social media or any other projects that you've been working on recently? Yeah. Uh I'm a member of the Finnish Social Democratic Party, and I work in a worker cooperative called VME, and I'm also a co-editor of a magazine, online free online magazine called Mutual Interest Media, which uh, is a cooperative owned by the readers and the writers. But there's no paywall; everybody can read it freely. And in addition, I'm involved in a in a bunch of other uh, cooperative stuff and and. Uh, yeah, that's basically what I'm most interested in, is building new cooperatives. Excellent. Uh, so yeah, thank you for being here. So let's uh, get right off the bat into cooperatives. This is going to be a very cooperative-heavy conversation for all the listeners. Um, so we on the left have these methods of socializing the economy that we want to put in practice in terms of policy positions. I talked a couple of weeks ago about social wealth funds and nationalization of certain sectors, but the other key components are obviously co-ops. Now, how do co-ops fit into these goals? And also, uh, can you kind of break down a little bit of the differences between what a consumer co-op is and what a worker co-op is? So I think one of the big problems with the capitalist system is that you have only one structure of organizing people in the economy that dominates everything. And that's a capitalist firm. And in a capitalist firm, you, you know, you buy shares and the more shares you own, the more votes you get to elect the board of directors and a larger portion of profits you get. Mm -hmm. And I think the goal of democratic socialism should be to create an economy where you have different, a lot of different arrangements to organize economic activity that are more democratic. So it's not dominant. We, we shouldn't replace uh, the capitalist firm with one dominant form of enterprise, but rather have this pluralism of a lot of different democratic ways to organize uh, organize the economy and, and finding what model fits in what circumstances to sort of maximize the well-being of people. And whereas in a capitalist business, you buy shares, you get votes and larger portion of the profits, in cooperatives, the voting power to elect the leadership is shared equally between all members. So it's one member, one vote. And the profits are distributed according to how much you contribute to the to the enterprise. So in a worker cooperative, all workers have one vote in electing the board of directors, and the profits are distributed according to how much labor they have contributed to the mm -hmm. enterprise. And in a consumer cooperative, every customer can join as a member and they have one vote to elect the board of directors and the profits are distributed according to how much they have contributed, how much they have bought the goods and services from the cooperative. So, for example, in a grocery cooperative, uh, you would go buy the groceries, you could stand or vote in the board election. And at the end of the year, 
the profits would be distributed to you and you would get a larger share of the profits if you had bought more groceries. And the most common form of consumer cooperative in the United States and in Canada for that matter are credit unions. So credit unions are cooperatives owned, they are banks that are owned by the customers democratically and the profits are distributed to the, to the customers uh, at the end of the year according to how much of the banking services the customers have used. And in addition, you have purchasing cooperatives, which are similar to consumer cooperatives, but you don't you the members are organizations. So in the United States, you have, for example, Ace Hardware. And there, everybody who owns an Ace Hardware store is a member owner of the Ace Hardware franchise. So the franchise, Ace Hardware, is a cooperative owned by the store owners. And what mm -hmm. they do is that every store purchases together. So instead of every store separately buying, you know, lawnmowners to sell to the consumers, they pool their purchasing power together and buy a whole lot of lawnmowners, everybody together, so they can bargain the price down that way. And then there's also producer cooperatives. So here you have typically farms and they, it's, a, it's democratically owned by the farmers and the profits are distributed according to how much produce they have contributed to the cooperative. So the, the biggest example in the United States is the Dairy Farmers of America, and it's the largest dairy company in the United States, and the profits are distributed back to the dairy farmers according mm -hmm. to how much milk they have contributed to the, to the Dairy Farmers of America. So how much they have sold to the Dairy Farmers of America, the cooperative, and the cooperative processes it, makes it into cheese, sells it forward, so on. And one of the one of the big questions that I don't have a sort of coherent answer, but I think would be very important for for the left to think about is what ownership model exactly fits what part of the economy? Or should there be parts of economy where different ownership models coexist? And there are there are a few examples of this. So maybe the most major one is the German banking system, where you have cooperative banks. You have publicly owned banks, and then you have sort of conventional capitalist banks. And in there, at least during the 2008 financial crisis, the publicly owned banks were most likely to have, you know, gambled money and made losses and gone bust. And the cooperative mm -hmm. banks were the least likely. So actually, although half of all banks in Germany are cooperative banks, not a single one has gone bankrupt in 90 years. They are absolutely awesome. Uh, so, so it might be that in the banking sector, maybe cooperative ownership is more suitable than public ownership, or maybe you should have both. But these are the sort of questions that I would hope people would put their sort of intellect to, to, um, to figure out. And mm -hmm. and you can also have systems. You can also have examples where public ownership makes more sense than than cooperative ownership. So, for example, in 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 health insurance, you have this so-called adverse selection problem, where basically the people who need uh, healthcare the most would have to pay the most and are are most likely to be left out of of health insurance because it's unaffordable. And there, whether it's a cooperative or a capitalist firm, doesn't make that much of a difference. It doesn't solve the adverse selection problem. Whereas if Everybody has a has a publicly owned health insurance, you know that sort of fixes that. But these are these are the sort of questions where I don't I don't have a coherent answer where you can say okay, you know you can point out an industry and I can say okay this should be cooperatives, this should be mm -hmm. publicly owned. No, you know this is something that we have not thought about enough, and I think we should um, we should try to think more around. It is so it's it's basically like more of a case by case kind of thing. 
Uh, and so we kind of pick and choose the domains where we think uh, nationalization may be useful or maybe worker co-ops may be useful. And this kind of brings me to what we've uh, talked about in the past. You say uh, co-ops are this kind of excellent uh, way to uh, meet and fight the capitalists in their own domain, uh, which is markets. Can you um, expound a little bit more on that? Sure. So there is this one criticism of cooperatives where you say that, okay, well, you know, the capitalists are so ruthless that you can't compete with them with cooperatives. Mm -hmm. And I have two problems with these arguments. First of all, what that argument really means is that we should left the entire market systems only to capitalists. And that's the thing that the capitalists love. They obviously love that argument because what you say is that, oh, we shouldn't compete with the capitalists. We should give them a monopoly on, on you know, market economy. So all the firms that are established, they should be capitalists. Then. People shouldn't shut up cooperative firms. So first of all, that's that's a problem I have. I don't think the the the, the world of business should be left to the capitalists and, and mm -hmm. that everybody who starts a new firm should start as a capitalist business. And another problem is that it's not really true that we can't outcompete capitalists. So, for example, in the United States, since the 2008 financial crisis, credit unions have seen an asset growth twice the pace of capitalist banks. So they are already outcompeting the capitalist banks. And, and credit union membership have grown tenfold to 125 million in the United States since 1960. So obviously they are outcompeting the capitalists at the moment. And in my country of mm -hmm. origin, Finland, the biggest bank is a cooperative and the biggest grocery store is a cooperative and the biggest grocery store also owns the biggest gas station chain and the biggest hotel chain and the cooperative bank owns the biggest insurance company. So in Finland, in a lot of industries, a lot of big key industries, cooperatives have already outcompeted the capitalists. So I'm not saying it's easy and I'm not saying that cooperatives are a sort of silver bullet to solve everything. I've already pointed mm -hmm. out that I don't think that it, they will solve the problems in, in sort of health insurance and adverse elections. But this idea that we should not compete with capitalists and we should left the entire market to the capitalists and that we can't compete with them is not, it, it's, I, I don't buy that argument. Mm -hmm. No, I agree with that argument. Um, all right, so let's uh, move on to the next question. Uh, you've written a little bit about like the history of co-ops. Can you walk us through um, the kind of roles that cooperatives played in the history of Nordic uh, social democracy? Yeah, so it's a very important, I think it's the most neglected part when there is a lot of fascination and interest towards social democracy, the Nordic social democracy. But the role of consumer cooperatives is the most neglected part of it, not just mm -hmm. among sort of Americans, but also among Finnish and Nordic social democrats. They don't they don't focus on it. And, you know, in cooperatives play a huge part of Nordic countries in every Nordic country, either the largest or the second largest grocery store chain is a cooperative, for example. And my thinking is that sort of if you want to understand social democracy and why it succeeded, was because they had two very simple organizing strategies. So the first one was that you get a group of workers together and they elect a representative and that representative or representatives uh, negotiates better wages and, and lower working hours and better working conditions. So that's trade unions. That's one pillar. The other pillar has been consumer cooperatives where you get a group of consumers together and they elect representative or representatives that bargains for them better prices, better quality goods and services. And out of those two pillars, on top of them was built the Social Democratic Party. So actually, one should understand the Social Democratic parties as the sort of tip of an iceberg of a larger labor movement. And uh, 
these social democratic parties and the labor movements in Nordic countries, many people don't understand, but they ran these huge business empires of grocery store chains, insurance companies, savings banks that were all democratically owned, uh, uh, mostly as cooperatives. And this was um, this was a way by which you could get sort of normal people involved in it. So you had this sort of intertwined ecosystem of these mass membership organizations, unions and cooperatives that provided tangible benefits in the everyday life of ordinary people who participated in it. So the, the reason why social democrats mm-hmm. won was not because you know, working class people set up these book clubs where they read Keynesian economics and Karl Marx and stuff like that. It was because the social democratic movement set up grocery stores where they could get cheaper bread or they set up, a, you know, they went on a strike and won reduced working hours. And that's how people got in, because there was some sort of, uh, one could say, sort of a selfish reason to join these organizations. It wasn't just altruistic. And once people joined these organizations for the benefits, then you, then they also sort of were convinced of the wider ideology. And it built these mass membership organizations for that reason, because you could attract mass membership because it provided tangible economic benefits in the everyday life of the people. So, so that's very important to understand about Nordic social democratic movements is that the parties were just the tip of an iceberg of a larger, almost like a parallel society or a, or a counter economy or uh, that, that, that that was born and, and cooperative enterprises, consumer cooperatives especially, played an absolute key part in that process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, in, in the article that you do talk about this, uh, one of the things that you mentioned that was uh, a big problem with these consumer co-ops was kind of the inflexibility that they had with the goods that they were providing. So you talk a little bit about how, um, if I recall correctly, it was, you know, they weren't able to provide the new and cool things like vinyl records or whatever. Can you talk a little bit about um, how they fa- how these consumer co-ops faltered a little bit? Right. So, uh, you know, a lot of the decline of the social democratic parties is analyzed from a perspective of the changes in labor markets. So, you know, how people work changed. And that's a very important thing to understand, to understand why social democratic parties have declined. But the other side of the coin is that you work to provide goods and services. And there was also a big change in how people consume that is that is totally intertwined with with the diff- with the changes in how they work, and so at the at the beginning of the when when the labor parties and the labor movement were established, a lot of the people were so poor that only thing that they spent money on was these necessities like buying bread and finding a home. So the labor movement established these housing cooperatives and they established grocery cooperatives. But once people had more purchasing power and they wanted to buy, say, vinyl records, the labor labor movement did not establish new cooperatives of, say, fan-specific uh, consumer cooperatives to buy vinyl records or, or you know, concert halls owned by by the concert cars as the as the as a consumer cooperatives or you know artist owned record studios or whatever so so you when you had this um when you had this diversification of consumption 
the labor movement did not establish new cooperatives in these areas, but instead they focused on these old big cooperatives and tried to expand them and, and it didn't work out. So, so there wasn't this process of starting new cooperatives in new areas of the economy. And it was not because you could not establish new that, that you know, it wasn't because, okay, we had run out of all the good ideas for cooperatives. I mean, that, that idea is as absurd as saying that we have run out of all good ideas to establish new shareholder businesses or that we have written all the books in the world or we have already, you know, filmed all the good films in the world. Obviously, that's uh, that's that's malarkey. And what's... And we have examples of this, like in Switzerland, the, the largest car sharing company is a cooperative. And in uh, Germany, the third largest IT firm is a, is a, a cooperative owned by 40,000 accountants mm -hmm. and lawyers. So you could have established cooperatives in new industries and you could do it right now. But the labor movement did not react this way and it didn't do that. And that's one of the reasons why it, uh, why it declined. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Um... Uh, so, sp speaking on this concept of consumer co-ops uh, and, and how they rose in Nordic social democracy, I think one of the very poignant points you brought up in one of our earlier discussions is like the type of people that did set this up. You were talking, we were talking about like poor farmers who worked uh, basically half the day, set up these cooperatives in the past. Like, what kind of uh, lessons can that offer the modern day left for setting up cooperatives? So, you know. I sometimes hear that okay, that's an old-fashioned, fashioned way of organizing. It worked uh, worked 100 years ago, but it doesn't work any, anymore. And that's uh, that's malarkey, also, because these people who set up these cooperatives were, you know, uh, factory workers who were barely literate, often illiterate. They worked 12 hours a day. They didn't have any money in the industrial Britain where these first cooperatives were established. The average life expectancy for the men who, for men uh, in those areas, was something like twenty-five to thirty. And if these people could establish cooperatives, now we have these massive existing cooperatives that have trillions in assets and, and massive amounts of resources. You know, we have so many highly educated people, and we have so much more spare time, and we have so much more money. Uh, so establishing cooperatives in today would be much easier than it was for them so so the opposite is true we are now in a much better situation to start cooperatives than what the sort of previous generations of of left organizers were in absolutely i think i mean that's a I always love the poignancy of this whenever we talk about it, just the idea of like kind of our lineage of where we do come from as leftists and why it's important to remember what our roots are. Um, so I guess let's let's pivot a little bit. Uh, you, uh, you want to talk a little bit about market socialism, right? So in your view, uh, what is uh, market socialism? So, yeah, there's there's maybe two different ideas of market socialism that are not mutually exclusive. So one of them is that you have a market economy, but you have a strong state. So you have strong welfare, welfare nets, you have a lot of public ownership of, of healthcare and, and some other areas. But basically you have a you have a market economy, and that's market socialism. Another point of view, and these are not mutually exclusive, is that you see markets as an arena for political competition. So the similar way as in the in electoral uh, elections for parliaments and presidency you compete with the with the sort of capitalist candidates. In the markets you can compete with the capitalist firms by setting up 
what I would consider socialist firms or non-capitalist firms, cooperatives, and out-competing them. So these are two different ways to view market socialism. So I see markets as an arena where we can advance and, and fight capitalists. And I think that market economy will develop into something uh, into something beyond capitalism, where where the capitalist firm is going to be, you know, they won't disappear entirely, but they will be in the margins, and, and most of the market economy will be consisting of of, of different, more democratic and, and, and superior structures. Mm-hmm. So I think on, on this point, there's a, there's a sort of repudiation that I can see, I can fathom kind of people on the left giving, um, and it would be that at, at what point, like when we start to, you know, ruthlessly compete with capitalists, do we abandon like what leftism should be about, like the kind of fair and equitable structure of a firm? Um, like what, what, what do you have to say about that? To, to, to compete with capitalists, do you think we have to behave like capitalists or can we still have the kind of principles of the kind leftism that we want while competing with capitalists and still succeeding? So, yeah, uh, cooperatives are not a silver bullet for everything. So if you want to increase wages, that's what unions are for. That's what minimum wage is for. Mm-hmm. So so that's that's one solution that that uh, is is for unions. But on the other hand, unions are not a silver bullet either. You know, if you want uh, uh, a climate policy, you need something like a carbon tax or emissions trading or whatever your solution is. You need state intervention. And then there are some some areas where probably cooperatives are good. So so it's you need to sort of fight the capitalists at all fronts. You need to have unions that 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 are paying in the ass for them and and ask for higher wages. You need to have the state that regulates them and taxes them. And then you need to have cooperatives that compete with them. So so you need to sort of, and this is the this is why the Nordics were so successful because you attack the the, the elites, the oligarchs at all directions, and that's that's the way I, I would approach that. But yes, yeah, sometimes uh, cooperatives and unions and 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 governments have to make you know less than ideal decisions. You know, sometimes I, I think in politics in general. Sometimes you only have less than I almost always you have less than ideal choices to choose from. Or mm-hmm. sometimes you might be in a situation where you only have bad choices to choose from, and you have mm-hmm. to choose the least bad. So, yeah, so yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, and I'm I'm never going to be saying that this is sort of super easy. But but uh, I think it's a it's a struggle that we should not give up on. We shouldn't have this defeatist attitude that, oh, well, we can't do anything because the capitalists will always outsmart us and outcompete us. No. And if you if you ask actually consumers, and this is done surveys, survey after survey, country after country, consumers want to buy from cooperatives. So they have a lot of advantages there. So, so yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, so it's uh, markets make up one of the arenas where we need to compete with capitalists on. There's uh, a, like a gamut of very different ones. Like, you know, you're saying political, uh, judicial, labor organizing, markets, cultural, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, we need to carve out a space to compete with them in each of those domains and not just specifically markets, right? If, if I'm uh, picking up on what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I could give a concrete example of how, for example, cooperatives work together with trade unions to increase wages. So the cooperatives, the consumer cooperatives realize that they they can't just raise wages a lot without being outcompeted by capitalists. But they could still work to increase the minimum wage by employing so by employing workers who organized strikes and were fired as a result. 
So you got people organizing strikes and or labor organizers who were fired by their employees. But then the consumer cooperatives affiliated with the labor market provided them with a job. So, mm -hmm. so even though the consumer cooperatives did not help increase the wages by having like consumer stores where the wages were high, they still could help unions organize so that the, the minimum wage was, was or, or the wages were established across the entire economy. So you need to be just clever in this organizing way. You need to figure out, you know, clever strategies on, on how to do organizing and how to utilize all these different organizations and organizing strategies together. Uh, so there's no one sort of silver bullet organizing strategy. Quite the opposite. You need to be organizing across the entire spectrum of the of the society. Mm -hmm. So work together as leftists and collaborate in all these kind of arenas. That's that's a good point. Um, so I, I, this is like at, at the halfway mark of the conversation. I kind of want to shift gears a little bit. Uh, we've talked a little bit about like the political theory and the uh, history behind co-ops, but I kind of want to go into. Uh, what co-ops are doing right now and, and the kind of stuff that you've been working on. So uh, you're a self-described platform co-op enthusiast. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the work you do, uh, what platform co-ops are, uh, and, and how you go about setting them up? Yeah, so platform cooperatives is, uh, is platform cooperatives a term that was coined in 2015. And it uh, at the moment, there was a lot of hype around sort of Airbnb and Uber and stuff like that. So some people were just asking, like, hey, what if these platforms would be owned as a cooperative by the users? And since then, we have seen, like, a lot of these uh, platform cooperatives established. So, for example, uh, you got Fairbnb, which is like an Airbnb, but it's owned by the host as a cooperative. And you got Resonate, which is like a Spotify but it's a cooperative owned by the listeners and the musicians and the and the developers of the platform. And you have in Canada, you have Eva Corp, which is a cooperative version of Uber that is the second most popular taxi app in three big cities in Canada. It's more popular than Lyft. Mm -hmm. It's not yet as popular as Uber, but it's already more popular than Lyft in these three cities. And in New York, just recently, they set up a driver's cooperative, which is uh, which is also an alternative to Uber. And uh, what I was attracted to with platform cooperatives was that in large areas of the sort of emerging economy, the platform economy, social media, digital economy in general, you have this tendency toward monopolies because you've got network effects. So uh, you know, everybody is joining Facebook because everybody else is already on Facebook. And that sort of drives towards monopoly. And cooperatives historically have been a solution for monopolies. So if, if you think about, say, a, a remote island where you have only one shop and that shop has a monopoly, if that shop would be owned by one store owner, that store owner would raise the prices as high as possible and exploit the consumers. But if that monopoly, is owned by the consumers themselves, well, you know, if they raise the prices very high to make a lot mm -hmm. of profit, that profit is just distributed back to them. And if there are managers who sort of raise the prices and take the profits to themselves, the consumers just can just elect better board of directors. So in monopolies, uh, cooperatives tend to, have a, uh, tend to have an advantage. So I mm -hmm. was thinking that these sort of uh, industries that tend towards monopolies should be user-owned cooperatives. And there are a few other benefits to that. So 
Uh, a lot of the times, the sort of shareholders of these companies and the users have some conflicting interests. So, for example, if Facebook would develop a new feature that would enable its users to organize better sports events. And as a result, a lot of Facebook users would be spending more time going to Zumba classes or tennis or playing tennis or playing football mm -hmm. or whatever. Instead of being on Facebook, the, they might love, the users might love that feature, but the shareholders would be like, hey, people are spending less time on Facebook. They're not watching ads. We must stop this thing. Whereas if Facebook would be a user-owned cooperative, they could do that because there would be no conflict of interest between the between the owners of the platform and the users of the platform if the users are the owners. And mm -hmm. uh, I remember in, in your previous podcast, there was a lot of talk about social wealth funds. And I totally love the idea of social wealth funds. I think we should establish a lot of them and we should expand them. But when it comes to these global platforms like, say, Twitter or Facebook or so, I think there can be some issues about which government should own how much of these platforms, right? Mm -hmm. So there, I think when it comes to these global platforms, it might make more sense to have democratic cooperative user ownership instead of them being government-owned entities. And you have other problems with government ownership, like you know NSA and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, mm. so so that's why I'm very interested about uh, uh, platform cooperatives. And there are many, like since the term was coined, there are so many projects popping up every you know every week. I would like to say there's a new platform cooperative established. So it's great to see this vibrant movement where people are are pursuing projects and you can participate in these projects and people are you know it's not just a sort of intellectual exercise where we think oh it would be cool if this would happen people are actually building these things these new websites and and some of them fail some of them succeed but that's part of the process of trial and error that we are engaging in so uh, yeah it's a fantastic movement and, and everybody should should try to get involved in it yeah that's uh, absolutely absolutely this is seems like uh maybe like the halcyon days for co-op. So we should all try to get involved in the setting up of them. Um, so to get back to what, you know, you, you kind of do uh, in terms of your writing and working with co-ops, uh, you talk a fair bit in your articles about cooperation uh, between co-ops. Uh, can you describe this process and how does this uh, give co-ops uh, an advantage in the 21st century? Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier, you have these massive cooperatives that have massive amounts of of, uh, of, of assets and resources. So the credit unions in the United States, for example, they have two trillion in assets. So that's a lot of money. And at the same time, you have a lot of small new cooperative startups that don't get almost any money. So, you know, you can have this sort of um, connecting the dots in my galactic brains and thinking, hey, it would be cool if these this money that these big cooperatives would ha have would be invested or lent or or given as grants to new small and medium-sized cooperatives. And there are a few examples of this happening. So in the United States, for example, a few years ago, they started the first accelerator for cooperatives in the tech sector called Start.coop. And they're actually not right now looking for new cooperatives. And, and it's a very simple program. They give like two months of mentoring and they give eight cooperatives each year a $10,000 grant and this mentoring. And one of the main funders of it was this cooperative called CCA Global Partners, which is a, a, a purchasing cooperative of carpet flooring businesses. And it's actually the biggest carpet flooring business in the world. So the founder of, of CCA Global Partners and his son 
Howard Brodsky and Greg Brodsky are, are, are key figures in this accelerator. But this is, they are giving out $10,000 grant to uh, eight cooperatives. And if those cooperatives succeed and they make a lot of money, they start investing back to the grant so future cooperatives can get these grants. But this $80,000 is very small amount of money. If you compare that, credit unions have $2 trillion. So if these credit unions, for example, would give out one out of every thousand dollars to invest in cooperatives or lend to them or give it out to them, they could give one hundred thousand dollars to twenty thousand cooperatives instead of giving ten thousand dollars to eight cooperatives. So you know you you don't have to revolutionize these big cooperatives. You have to move them like one tenth of an inch, and you could suddenly have a massive boom of new cooperatives. And, mm. and this doesn't have to be like anything massive. So right now I'm talking, for example, with a tool sharing cooperative in Rhode Island called uh, uh, PVD Things. And mm. we are trying to get the local credit unions involved in that when those local credit unions give out the home improvement loan to their members, they could also give a gift card that these uh, that the members of the credit unions could use to lend tools from the tool sharing cooperative, because if they're doing home improvement, they might need you know power tools and stuff like that. So why not use it in a in a in a tool sharing cooperative? So a lot of these ideas on how to cooperate with cooperatives, you don't need like a mathematics and economics degree from me at MIT to figure this out. You're like, okay, credit unions are giving home improvement loans. We have a tool sharing cooperative. Let's connect the dots here. So so what I love about this thinking is that um, it's very simple. It's very practical and what we are right now doing with uh, with a friend of mine, we set up this organization called Members for Cooperation. And the longer name is Members for Cooperation Between Cooperatives. And our goal is to have a big email list and an organization of ordinary members of mostly big consumer cooperatives like credit unions and, and electric cooperatives and all that, and organize them within their institutions. So to push those institutions to do more to support small and medium-sized cooperatives and cooperative startups. And as I said, you know, you don't need to take over all of these institutions and, and revolutionize them. You need to move them a very small bit and you can already unleash massive revolution in, in terms of, of funding for new cooperatives. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and one of the aspects behind it is, uh, as you were mentioning, is like the, the political organizing behind credit unions. We should try to, you know, run elections to have leftists represent kind of the board members on these uh, kind of credit unions so we can disperse more of the, the funds to kind of new and exciting co-op projects, right? Absolutely. And, and that's one of the things uh, about how, how what, what sort of, what can the modern left learn from the past left cooperative organizing is that many people don't realize that we have these massive democratic structures in the economy. So a lot of the time the left talks about expanding democracy in the economy, making more areas of the economy democratic. But a lot of the time we don't realize that there are already large democratic structures in the economy that we don't utilize at all. So we have uh, credit unions that I've mentioned many times, 125 million members. Their board elections are democratic. Why don't we participate in, it, in them? We got mutual insurance companies. We got pension funds. In pension funds, the trustees are often elected by the policyholders. So in uh, Minnesota Firefighters Pension Fund, it's the firefighters who elect the trustees and they can stand in the trustee election. So why don't we organize in these elections to get these institutions to do more um, to um, 
to to um, pursue the goals of a more democratic and, and socially owned economy. And this is not at all uh, uh, impossible. So uh, in Texas, the largest electric company there, or at least the largest electric cooperative there called Pedernales, it has 300,000 members. In 2009, one of the members there just called the cooperative managers and asked, hey, do you have any incentives for, for solar power? And they said, no, we don't have that, you know, uh, stop bothering us. Then he figured out, they Googled a bit and figured out, hey, this is a cooperative. So if I want them to have like solar incentives, I can just vote in the elections. And they organized this massive campaign or not even a massive campaign. They just organized a lot of ordinary members. And even though the the incumbent board directors were very hostile to it and tried to do every sort of trick in the book to stop them, they won the board elections. They won a majority in the board of directors. And then they started doing solar incentives. And this is what we could do a lot with credit unions and others. And many of these credit unions and other cooperatives, they don't have a hostile board. They are desperate to find board members that are not sort of retired boomers. So so the, 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 the left has a lot of uh, enthusiastic uh, young people who should be just approaching their local credit union and asking, hey, can I volunteer for, as your board board member? You know, they would be surprised to learn how easy it is to get into these things. Yeah, absolutely. These, uh, it, it's basically, you know, push less of these, these kind of book clubs and uh, kind of high level theory meetings and just go out and do easy organizing for the democratic structures that are already in place within the economy. I think that's yeah, absolutely I'm- an excellent strategy. Yeah, and, and one of the things is that this sort of organizing is sort of quite uh, inclusive in terms of many people being able to participate. So, for example, I love Piketty's idea about global wealth tax, but that's I, I cannot implement mm-hmm. a global wealth tax as much as I would like to have that power on myself. But, you know, if I'm uh, if I'm interested in, say, camping, I can start a camping equipment sharing cooperative in my community quite easily. Or if I like comic books, I can just start a artist-owned comic book website or a store or whatever. So if you have these different interests, and I hope everybody has different interests than just politics. So if you have other interests like camping, you can mm-hmm. sort of use those interests and get involved in organizing cooperatives. So instead of sort of spamming the email list of other campers in your area with, with sort of articles about keynesian economics you could just like hey how about we how about we start a camping equipment sharing cooperative and you get them involved and you find new people who might not be at, at, at political at all or who might have a different ideological point of view from you and you get them involved in this process and then you go to them like hey this cooperative democratic enterprise is quite cool right how about mm. larger parts of the economy would be run that way so you approach them different way they go like yeah I- like that idea yeah why don't we have more cooperatives so that's a way of of doing organizing that uh, uh, that is inclusive in the sense that a lot of people can participate in and you can experiment it immediately it's not just the sort of a thought exercise you can do when you need like uh, a legislative majority in the senate to, to do it but mm. you can start doing it right now in in your local areas and you can start cooperatives and yeah uh, and I'm not going to say that it's super easy, but it's easier mm-hmm. to, than to implement the global wealth thing. Okay? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There's not, nothing I can do right now to make sure 190 plus countries in the world have a 
<laughs> the same tax rate for capital gains. Yeah, that's exactly. Uh, yeah, there's uh, things we can do in our own community. So I guess on the next question, um, this was really interesting. Uh, and I, I found the implications of this to be quite um, bigger in scope than uh, initially I thought it would be. But you've written about um, an eminent computer scientist, uh, Dr. Alex Pentland. Uh, he talks about the future of co-ops uh, and how uh, co-ops could revolutionize how user data is held and distributed. Can you uh, run us through this? Yeah. So Alex Pentland is a MIT professor and he's the most one of the most cited computer scientists in the world. So he knows what he's talking about. And he has this idea of credit unions allowing their members to set up these data cooperatives because they they are they already have to and they have certain uh legal structure that that makes them uh ideal for this purpose obviously they are cooperatives but there are also other other legal things where they have to handle their their uh, members data in a certain way and he has developed this simple software where you could basically Instead of having your data collected by Facebook and Twitter and stuff like that, you could just install something in your devices so that all of that data goes to this data vault of yours that is safe by that is that is sort of stored in the credit union in a in a data cooperative. And then you can pull this data together alongside other credit union members and use it to sort of collectively bargain for better deals on how the data is used. So, for example, if the if you pull data together and you notice that, hey, there's 1,000 people buying cat food every month that, that, that are also members of credit unions that are pulling their data together this way, how about we approach cat food companies and ask to purchase, to make a sort of joint purchase and bargain the price down of these cat food. And, and this might mean that you just pull data together, handle it cooperatively, and you get a bunch of sort of coupon codes that are that are bargained for you. Or you could, you know, the, the, the uses of this, this thing is absolutely massive. Like there's so much, if only the imagination is the limit on how this sort of data could be used. Because it would be owned by the people themselves as a data cooperative. So it would not have to be used to maximize the shareholder profit of Facebook or whatever, but it could be used in, in a way that, that benefits the people who actually produce this data. And he has built this, uh, he has already built the software. So the software to do this is already there. And, and there was a funny story he told about this one company that is owned by the credit unions as a cooperative that handles their sort of data software systems. And he just approached this guy and said, hey, can you implement these changes so that these credit unions could immediately start these data cooperatives? And he just you know, made a few clicks, reprogrammed the entire data system, data software of the entire credit union sector in the United States to implement this. So it's right now sort of very easy and possible for credit unions to do this. And the funny thing is, that the credit unions didn't even notice that happening because the credit unions are just running this software. They don't notice what's in the updates and stuff like that. So suddenly all the credit unions in the United States could do this. There's no legal obstacles. There's no sort of the software is already there. They have already tried it out. You need to basically just turn the key and the whole engine starts. And only thing you need is to organize these credit union members to ask their board like, hey, could you do this? And a lot of them would probably say, yeah, why not? If our members want that and it's already there and it's easy, why not do this? So uh, mm. uh, uh, if you can if you can link the article in the 
uh, in the description of the of this absolutely. podcast. You can read the read the case more. But this would this would absolutely revolutionize the how data economy like data economy operates and reprogram the entire sort of uh, the most valuable asset in the economy mm-hmm. at the moment would be sort of in a democratic ownership and everything is almost like ready there. You just need to turn the key. So this mm-hmm. is an example of, of exciting things that can, can come out of cooperative organizing if we if we focus more on them. Yeah, absolutely. It's, 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 I mean, it's quite sleek and intuitive, but yet kind of revolutionary idea. I'm really glad that uh, you could put that on my radar. Um, so another thing you've written about is the, the boom in trailer parks converting to cooperatives. And I know, uh, from previous conversations that you think that, um, uh, cooperatives might not be the solution for uh, the housing crisis, but you also have, uh, you know, you, you've been pushing, uh, market rate housing a little bit. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So what, what I would say, so we have around 200 trailer parks that have converted into cooperatives. Or actually more. I can't remember how many right now, but they are booming. And I think that is a fantastic form of organizing because a lot of these people in the in the who live in trailer parks, they don't need to be lectured about the about how capitalism sucks because they are at the receiving end of you know capitalism often. That being said, a lot of these trailer park communities are actually very nice people or retired people go and it's it's you know I don't want to stigmatize these people. A lot of these communities are actually very nice places. But anyway, so you have this uh, have this movement where these trailer park communities join together and they buy the land and the sort of utilities there and they run the trailer park community as a cooperative. And that's obviously very great because they have the incentive to make the community very nice. And it has worked very well. It economically benefits the residents a lot. And these are often the residents that are uh, some of that are that are often at the at the receiving end of the of the greatest economic injustices in the in the economy. So this is a great way of organizing, and and I think housing cooperatives work great in this instance, and they can also work great in say uh, elderly care homes that would be owned by the care workers and uh, and uh, families of the elderly people who live there. It can work great in student housing, but when it comes to housing itself. Even if the community owns the land as a cooperative, I am still uncomfortable with private mm-hmm. ownership of land. So I think all land should be in public ownership because I'm, I'm a Georgist and I believe that the sort of increases in the value of the land is caused by the sort of overall development of the society. It's not caused by the actions of the owners of the land. So it's a sort of unearned increment that should be owned by the government. So the government should own all the land. But... Perhaps the buildings themselves should be owned by a cooperative, by the residents, because mm-hmm. if the buildings themselves are owned by the by the government, the residents themselves might not have a great incentive to sort of maintain and improve those buildings. But if they would be cooperatively owned, that might work. So maybe maybe uh, you know my model would be that you would have a, a, a public ownership of land, and then you would have buildings owned uh, owned cooperatively. But I also like the idea of having market rate public housing. So one of the sort of utopias that I have would be a city where everybody lives in a sort of rental apartments that are publicly owned and the rents are set at market rate. And then the money from the rents would be distributed as a UBI. But that's a very simplified idea and you probably need below market rate housing and maybe you don't want to spend all of the money in UBI. But I really like uh, I really like uh, public ownership of land and I really like the idea of 
government not just building uh, housing that is below market rate, but you know when we build luxury housing, that should be publicly owned as well, uh, so that the rich people who move there and pay their rent to that, they would pay that rent to public coffers, so it can be redistributed to 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 lower income people. So I, I'm a big fan of 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 public ownership of land, and I think that we also need not just sort of below market rate public housing, but we also need market rate public housing. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I think that's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's one of those uh, continuations of the idea that, you know, we need to carve out the domains where we think a particular leftist policy is useful and where it isn't. And so this may be just one of those domains where it's better to have um, not have cooperatives involved. Uh, so I want to get to the, the final question uh, for today. Uh, so what are some new and exciting co-op projects that you see coming up in the near future? What I may be most excited about is that we have seen in the last six years, first sort of truly global cooperatives emerge, or we are seeing, you know, global cooperatives emerge. So before, you know, you set up a credit union and everybody in the area can join the credit union. But now you have projects like uh, Resonate, which is like a, a Spotify, cooperatively owned Spotify. And you have Ampled, which is like a cooperatively owned Patreon for musicians. And everybody in the world is just like few clicks away from joining them. So that means that these cooperatives can grow into something bigger than any past cooperative because everybody in the world who has an internet connection is a potential member. And they can grow faster than any past cooperative because everybody can join with few clicks. So this is something that I'm very excited about. And it doesn't have to be necessarily that everybody can join the cooperative, but it might be that everybody in the world can invest in cooperatives. So as I mentioned, there was a, in the United States, there is a, just around a, maybe nine months ago, they set up a driver's cooperative, which has now grown by membership as the largest worker cooperative in the United States. And they did a fundraising campaign in WeFunder where you could invest in this cooperative and it's not non-extractive investment. So you provide a bit of funding. If the cooperative succeeds, they basically buy you out and you mm -hmm. make a, you make a, a fair return, but you, you don't, you don't have any voting rights there and eventually they buy you out. So you're not going to be extracting value for uh, infinitely, but they, because you know, they, they needed funding to get it started. So they did this uh, fundraising campaign, crowdfunding campaign. And they raised, they have now raised like $1.2 million for ordinary people investing. And one of the cool things there was that I'm Finnish, or actually I live in the UK, but I'm, I'm, I'm a Finnish citizen, and I could invest in that. So soon we will have these cooperatives set up in, say, India, Tech Cooperative India, and everybody around the world can invest in them. And everybody in the world is just a few clicks away from investing them. So I see in this global thing huge opportunities. And I'm right now working uh, to build uh, uh, an app in my within my worker cooperative, with my worker cooperative, the VME, mm -hmm. that has 36 full-time employees. All mm -hmm. of them are members, including me. And we are building an app called Coop Exchange that would allow people to invest in cooperatives. So it would be a simple app and you could invest in cooperatives through that. And then I'm building this Coop Data Club, which is basically like email newsletter marketing where you can join this it will start off as simply a, a, a newsletter so you can join a newsletter and you get special offers from cooperatives uh, if you want to buy from cooperatives if you want to invest in cooperatives you receive this email newsletter and it has other information about cooperatives as well and then the money that is made from marketing that is distributed back to the people so you basically get paid to receive emails from cooperatives and another mm -hmm. another element of the co-op data club is that 
cooperatives can promote themselves in each other's email newsletters. So once in a, a, a while ago, I was talking with a fellow, a friend of mine who is involved in running a food cooperative. And he told that they have 2,000 people in their email list and they don't really know what to send them. And then a few days later, I was talking with uh, with another friend of mine who is involved in this great retrofitting cooperative and they're doing a, doing a fundraising campaign and they were like, where can we promote this thing? And so in my galactic brain, I connected the dots here that, wait, we have a lot of cooperatives with a big email list that want to promote other cooperatives and want to you know, put out content. And then we have cooperatives that want to promote themselves. So the Coop Data Club would also involve uh, that cooperatives can add their email list into the site and then mm. they can promote other cooperatives and other cooperatives can promote uh, promote them and they can make sort of different arrangement of cross promotions where, okay, I promote one cooperative every month and one, co- one other cooperative promotes me every month. And this is a big cooperative advantage because I sent a small survey to small and medium-sized cooperatives asking like, hey, how many people you have in your email list? Would you like to promote other cooperatives in your email list? And all of them said, yeah. But if I had mm-hmm. said... If I had sent like shareholder firms like, hey, would you like to promote other firms in your email list for free just because they are also shareholder firm owned? They would be like, they wouldn't even understand the question. They would go, what the hell are you talking about? They would get fucked. Exactly. (laughs) They would be like, oh, yeah, exactly. So this is a a massive cooperative advantage that cooperatives want to promote each other in their email. So this is one thing that we're we're doing with the the Coop Data Club. And and there are so many exciting projects going around there. So if everybody has has an uh, idea for some project or Mm -hmm. anybody wants to get involved in projects, my Twitter is... Uh, at Samalahti, you might want to add that how to type it in the, the description because it's a Finnish last name. People don't know how to type it. Absolutely. And, and I mean, just, the name's going to be in the title too, so don't worry about it. Okay, yeah. great. Well, it's it's just my last name. And, and people can send me DMs to get involved. And I'm also a co-editor of Mutual Interest Media, which is a cooperative owned by the readers and the writers. And we are looking for writers who are interested in writing about this sort of from a bit of a market socialist perspective about unions and economic policy and cooperatives. And we are desperate for writers. So, you know, if you're interested in, in earning a bit of money by writing articles for us, don't uh, don't hesitate to get in touch. And we have a quite a cool structure where, you know, everything is free to read, but people can join as members for three pounds a month. And we don't use Patreon. We, own the, we use a cooperative alternative to Patreon to collect those mm-hmm. membership fees. And then each month, all the articles published in that, that month are put on a vote, and all members can vote on how much they like these articles. They distribute 20 points between their articles according to how much they like them. And uh, around half of our money is distributed to the writers according to how many points they get. Around half of our money is distributed to the writers equally if they have published that month. So that's the structure of how we... Uh, how we um, distribute our, our, our funds. And it's a totally democratic project. Readers who, who or subscribers are members, writers are members, and uh, we we want to do a lot of cool things in the future. So, you know, just message me and, and I can help you get involved with all of these all of these cool projects. Absolutely. I would recommend everybody listening to absolutely message Leo. I'll have all the links to all the co-ops that you just mentioned and all the exciting stuff coming up. Uh, so anybody who's listening, feel free to join. Uh, I know Leo's uh, been looking for some writers uh, for the co-op. But anyway, that's all I had for you. Thank you so much, Leo, for taking the time to come on the interview. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Absolutely. I enjoyed this very much and, and best of luck to you.